0: You have to force yourself in having a discipline of asking the hard questions about all those ideas.
1: What's the impact? What's the revenue goals? What's target market? How much time are we talking about? The ideas are plenty. There are a lot of great ideas. You have to figure out which great ideas is going to turn into the greatest, the highest revenue. And that's the very hard exercise. You know, I've seen many leaders know that they have to do that, but not do that very diligently and in a very disciplined way.
0: Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Right now, many of us are being asked to do more with less. If you're aiming for efficiency and reducing cost, this episode is for you. Shailesh Kumar, SVP of Engineering at ClickUp, joins us to discuss cost-effective scaling and engineering efficiency. We cover shifting your engineering org's paradigm to efficiency, cost-effective areas you should consider, including your cloud strategy, building teams to optimize for engineering efficiency, and how to make your EPD flywheel operate smoothly. Plus, Shailesh shares tons of tactics to help you increase the output of your engineering org, we even get into how to hire without losing efficiency and what hires to make first. Let me introduce you to Shilesh. At ClickUp, Shailesh leads the engineering, security, and IT operations for the company. He has more than 18 years of experience in building large-scale organizations and cloud platforms for high-growth companies including his role as VP of Engineering at MuleSoft and Salesforce post-acquisition, as well as head of data platform and server teams at Tableau. Enjoy our conversation with Shailesh Kumar. Shailesh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing this morning? How are things? What's going on?
1: Great. Uh, it's a bright, sunny day. Doing really well. I think we are uh, we're entering into, from a ClickUp perspective, we are entering into our level-up theme. So 3.0 are around the corner The team is really pushing hard towards a lot of features, a lot of platform initiatives that we've been pushing for a level up. Uh, You know, February is a very busy month for us.
0: To that. Absolutely. Well, I, it's it feels exciting to catch you at this moment, because knowing with some of the topics we want to get into. So thinking about right now, you have the big customer conference coming up. So that means the team has a, a huge demand to help finish up all of the features and announce it to everybody and bring those to life. The, the topic we want to talk about was scaling in an efficient, cost effective way. And so in some ways, like, I think it's a perfect thematic time to be diving into this topic, I guess to bring us into your world Can you share a little bit about your experience at ClickUp the past couple of years and where maybe you've had to reassess your own approach to scaling and engineering org efficiency, especially now, I guess, coming into this final month before the the big customer conference, what are some of the things that you've been reflecting on or thinking about over the last few years? For the
1: last 18, I've been at ClickUp for 18 months. And in the past 18 months, I have realized that every organization needs a different scale solution. So the problem might be the same, the scaling problem is all around people, as in whom are you hiring, the processes, what processes are you setting to build the product, and of course, the product and the architecture itself, the platform itself. But if you look at the solution that you need to implement, it's practically different for every company if you want to be successful. And that's the one thing I've realized and had the realization last 18 months that anytime you come to solve a scale problem, and anytime you're scaling up an organization and a platform, yes, your experience gets you there because your experience helps you understand spot the problems. But you have to throw out your book and you have to assess the situation, understand the dynamics, also understand the market. If you look at our software industry and the market in broadly, it has changed so much in the last couple of years. The things that were applicable like four or five years back are not applicable today. The way to scale is very different today than it was three years back. That's the one thing I tell everyone. Don't go with the book. Look at the situation and understand what needs to be done to scale. Yes, it starts with the people, hiring the right people, but the right people for Every company is very different. The right people for Airbnb might not be the right person for ClickUp. The right person for, I don't know, uh, Google might not be the right person for ClickUp. You have to assess where you are, assess the needs of the business, and make sure you hire the right person. It's not always the same person. So that's something that I have realized in the last 18 months, and that's something I tell everyone to take away from.
0: There's so many little things that I wanted to deconstruct or expand on there from what, what you shared. So you you mentioned throwing out the book and reassessing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about maybe what that looked like for you when you're thinking about some of the strategy and how the engineering org evolves at ClickUp. What are some previous ways of moving forward with the organization that maybe you had to reassess or, or think differently about moving into sort of the the current phase and market that we're in now?
1: So if you look at the market, so the market we are in right now is a lot different than market and year back. Just in year back itself, the focus was primarily on growth and mainly figuring out how do you grow irrespective of the cost. And we all operated in that context. We all operated with that principle and we all operated without those constraints and with the different type of constraints. Growth was growth at all costs. Now we are looking at being very cost sensitive. A dollar today is worth more than a dollar it was probably a year back. So you have to be cost sensitive and mindful of the impact of the dollar. The dollar that you spend, what is the impact on the business? What's the ROI? So a lot of questions on the ROI of every hire you make, on every decision you're making, every investment you're making, and ROI from a direct bottom line perspective, your direct revenue, it has become a lot more important. There's a lot more focus on automation, making sure that we're not throwing bodies at a problem and we are really solving it through automations and focusing your energy and your best developers on things that are directly impacting our users and our customers. That has become key. Because when you don't have constraints about dollars, you know, you can invest in many things. Some of them might not be directly customer or user impacting because you're, you don't have those constraints. But once you have constraints, that's where priorities become very clear. What's your top priority? For us at this stage of the company, we are growing very fast and our users and our customers are the key. They're the ones that are gonna fuel our growth. So we are our, maximizing our dollars, maximizing our investments towards everything that impacts the users directly. And anything else is become secondary. Even with the big tech, with the even big tech is probably going to that motion where there's a lot of churn happening and refocus back to the users. I think so, at some level, when you grow bigger, uh, the focus you know moves away. Smaller companies are much better with that focus versus larger companies that way.
0: Absolutely. So this this notion of being more more sensitive around the cost being more cost sensitive, I think is is really powerful. And I think oftentimes, like for folks in our community, there's a big aspiration to have a better understanding of how the investments within engineering impact the business. And so I was wondering, specifically to this, this idea of, of becoming more cost sensitive, What have you found are some of the specific areas that engineering leaders must be cost-sensitive with in this environment right now? You mentioned you have to be much more focused on the customers and the users. Are there other areas that you would want to bring up and share about being more cost-sensitive?
1: I think especially in the cloud environment where most of us are developing in the cloud, Cloud cost is a big area, and I think everyone is already very cost-sensitive around their cloud cost. I think that's an area everyone should look at very closely because there are many dollars you can save there. There are many ways to save a lot of dollars there, and every think what is every dollar you save there, you can go and hire someone who can build a feature that will directly impact your users. So if you think of that circle, if you start thinking in that way, you start optimizing your cloud cost significantly. So that's one the second one I also have seen. Now I would recommend everyone to do uh, when the money was cheap. Let's say that's ironical to say that the money was cheap, but everyone bought a lot of software to optimize their internal processes, and a lot of them might be redundant. And doing a good, good audit of the softwares that you have purchased is actually a great thing. I think it helps you focus and helps you re- reclaim some of those dollars. Those are some of the things that we are doing internally looking at our software vendors looking at all the purchases that we've made looking at our cloud cost and we have definitely found a good amount of money just lying there not being fully utilized and that's where you go back to priority it helps with the prioritization there
0: I can imagine a lot of folks listening in are like, oh man, I would love to, you know, open up the pillow underneath the engineering leadership or like the engineering hood and to see lots of unspent money to be able to invest in other things. I was wondering if we could break down a couple of these a, a little bit to learn about what this was like for you and maybe some of the specific areas that you learned about that you could become more cost sensitive around. Um, so specifically with the the focus like a deeper, and even more extensive focus on customers and users. Were there any insights or lessons that you uncovered within the last six months or so um, that helped you think differently about what? what you need to do to serve your customers better?
1: I think you need to look at the investment more. You have to ask a lot of business questions because many times what happens to the GTM teams the go-to-market teams or from an innovation angle also, there are a lot of ideas that come by. You have to force yourself in having a discipline of asking the hard questions about all those ideas. What's the impact? What's the revenue goals? What's target market? How much time are we talking about? The ideas are plenty. There are a lot of great ideas. You have to figure out which great ideas is going to turn into the greatest, the highest revenue. And that's the very hard exercise. You know, I've seen many leaders know that they have to do that, but not do that very diligently and very in a very disciplined way. It sounds very easy, but you know, when you have great ideas, having the discipline to go and drill it down to the actual impact from a revenue perspective, customer perspective, even long term, you know, market you're, are you trying to defend a market? Having a very clear rationale helps you understand how many people to put there. Because you can have an idea, you can put five engineers, one engineer, or you can put fifty engineers. Understanding how many engineers to invest there will only come on the outcome. Like if you clearly understand the outcome you're driving towards, and that's something that I think a lot of us, uh, in the rush to get some things out, we don't do that very diligently.
0: I think I think you're so right. My my next question was like, man, I was I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through what that conversation might look like, or like what that process looked like to help identify the, those investment areas. Is there a specific example that comes to mind at, at ClickUp that you could walk us through?
1: I can't talk about a specific feature, but the, I would say that, for example, one of them, there was a there was a request by a specific customer, one specific customer, and uh, it was a very loud one. And when we got deeper into, is this a specific one off case for that customer or is this going to be applicable for all of our customers in that segment? And at a high level, it seems a good idea. It seemed a good idea that it would probably be applicable to many customers. But when you dig deep into it, many of the customers would rate it much lower in the priority. So yeah, they would say, ah, it's nice to have, but it would be much lower in the priority versus other investments we we're making. So when you stack rank it, you look at a feature and like, yeah, that's applicable across, let's say, all your favorite market segment or all of your mid-market segment in marketing agencies. Like, yeah, that's applicable, which is a pretty decent time for us. But when you actually go and start having these conversations, most of the companies will rate it very low. That, yeah, yeah, it's nice to have, but not really high priority on my list. So you have to go back and reassess, then, hey, let's make make sure that we are doing the high priority things on their list versus something that is nice to have. So at a surface level, it looked like, yeah, everyone in mid-market segment in marketing agencies would really want this feature. But when we actually dug deep, It was more of a nice to have than want. And that's where we had to go back and say, no, we won't be investing in this. And it was a hard conversation because this was an existing cloud customer. And we had to hold that down and say, no, we are not going to invest in this because the cost is not justifiable for the broader segment we have. And these are hard conversations. And that's that's a very specific one that we went through.
0: Do you have any recommendations on telling maybe a significant customer that now's the not, not the right time to invest in this particular feature? Is there any advice or insight you have?
1: I think that it's the best to be very transparent. I think that's what I've seen. Being very transparent on your roadmap. Like, hey, here's where we are moving towards. Here is our direction. Here is what we are going to do. Because customers appreciate that. They understand they want to be a partner. They want to be allies. And if they're bought into that mission where you're moving towards and your priorities order, ordered, then they will stick with you if they're not, you're in for a lot of pain either way because it would be this feature and then it will be another feature they'll request and another one. So if they're not aligned with the priorities that you have, you're actually better off losing that customer than keeping them because that customer will be very expensive for you
0: a courageous move and part of me is like for telling no I have a hard time telling people no so like if my stomach flips thinking about that but I think framing it in the context of the priority of the organization and driving that alignment I think helps remove some of that pressure of saying no and being able to communicate the overarching vision to folks I think also helps them understand like where is it going and how is that going to help me long term as well because I'm sure some of those other features like that customer will definitely benefit from. I was hoping you could expand a little bit more about how you reassess that cost and maybe some of the different areas that you might encourage folks to to look into to uncover what may be different opportunities to to be more cost effective around cloud cloud costs?
1: So we are primarily on AWS. I think the two of the major cloud costs that comes from us, one is our AWS spend and our APM spend. APM is application performance monitoring spend. Those are the two major buckets of spends that we have in the cloud cost environment. From an AWS spend perspective, we have dev environments like pre-prod environments, dev stage, all the development environments, and then you have the production environment. Many a times, you would not realize that the development environment sneaks up on you. The cost of development environment really sneaks up on you because we are so fixated on the production environment that we forget the cost of development environment. And it is something you'll suddenly get a very large bill. So that's something that you just put a governance around it and it works. That's one thing to keep in mind. In the production environment, one, I found that working with AWS has helped us. And uh, we worked with the AWS Solution Architects and AWS reps and other people. They have helped us identify areas where we could save money. Uh, and it was great because uh, I would not expect a vendor to help us save money. So that was really good because they identified, for example, instances for us that, hey, you know what, if you can move from this instance type to a uh, G-type or another instance type, you will need as many number of instances and it will net out. It will net dollar uh, would be smaller than what you're paying right now. It's much harder for us to identify those things because we don't have a full understanding of all AWS instance types. And it takes a lot of time to understand all the instance types, understand all the levers you have. AWS is a complex environment. So I, I, I have found that it was best to work with the AWS reps and the solution architects who come with the ideas on how to save money. That helped us a lot. Of course, they're not going to be free because you have to invest some dollars in making those changes but uh, they were worth it. Many a times what happens is that you, can see, you will find that small, small dollar savings, they add up. Hypothetically speaking, if you're saving like $15,000 a month, think about it this way, that $180,000 that in an year, and that is cumulative because in three years, you're going to be half a million dollars. So though even the small savings that you can do every month, they add up very quickly. I would not recommend ignoring those small savings because they can add up and they'll save you a lot in yearly cost. And if you look at three years out, so those are the two areas that we have really helped. Others are like AWS has specific programs and you should definitely encourage your devs to see if you can be part of those programs. They have map credits and they have uh, they have other discounts. Also, I think they're probably GPU on Graviton is cheaper than the other chip. Everyone has to figure out there are different ways you can move into different types, having reserve instances versus spot instances. APM is another one. APM also sneaks up on you. It can start small and then all your development team starts using it. And you have all your metrics and all your dashboards and you're monitoring and you're running your cloud environment. And suddenly the cost spikes up very quickly. So that's something that you need to put a governance around how much data you're going to inject in APM. What's the sampling rate you're going to use? Uh, how many custom metrics you're going to uh, monitor? So things like those helps. And also understanding that having a full picture of what an APM will cost you in two to three years. Because once you adopt, it's very hard to move off it. So you have to be very mindful that many of the largest APM vendors, they're very expensive. Are you willing to pay that cost or are you better off with some of the open source ones? Being very mindful helps here. I think APM, these are the two main cloud costs that we have seen that you can impact significantly and save quite a bit.
0: Just to remark a little bit here, this is the first time on the show where we've had anybody break down really in strategic detail, the different inputs you should be looking for to control costs. And so in some ways, my reaction is this is almost like a master's in finance for engineering leadership. And so just looking at some of these areas and even just thinking about some of the questions here to ask to help audit these areas just seem really helpful in this particular moment. I guess to ask specifically, are there any questions when you're looking at some of the the cloud cost investments? Are there questions that you ask to help you identify either challenging areas or areas that you could maybe reassess?
1: I think the first thing you should look at your architecture, if it is laid out correctly, because... Uh, when I looked at ClickUp's architecture, it was laid out, laid out in not the most efficient, cloud-efficient way, mm-hmm. how cloud is structured. In the cloud environment, a big machine costs, so let's say you have two small machines, and if from a computing power perspective, those two small machines add up to one big machine, that one big machine will likely be five times more expensive than those two small machines. Cloud is much cheaper in a horizontally scalable way versus vertically scalable way. As long as you understand that, I think you can you can drive a lot of value from cloud, but if your architecture is forcing you to vertically scale, it will be expensive for you as you scale. It might not be expensive right now, but as you scale, get more customers, vertically scaling will be really expensive. So that's the one thing that you have to look at your architecture and figure out how do we horizontally scale. Getting smaller instance types and getting more of a community hardware is much cheaper on AWS, GCP, or any of these cloud vendors than getting a massive big box. And that's where you have to invest Because, yeah, when you're small, it doesn't matter. Those numbers are very small. But suddenly your software starts picking up and you get stuck with a very large bill. Then those investments become very large. Because when you have a lot of customers, making infrastructure changes is very expensive. So you're better off making them early. Again, it's a balance because you might say that, you know what, we have not proven out the product. We don't have a product market fit. So why invest in an infrastructure when we don't even know it will scale or not? So that's where, you know, it's a very subjective assessment. You'll have to look at the business and how convinced and how much conviction you have in the business to scale. The moment you reached the place of conviction that, yeah, this is going to scale now, I think you should go and invest. Probably wait till then.
0: Great consideration and great balance there. I wanted to walk through one more of these cost sensitive areas and then wanted to get to the other side of it, which is also being able to unlock performance from the team in some of these areas where you have to be more cost sensitive with the amount of people that you can bring in. But the last thing is you mentioned optimizing your software investments or or going through a a software audit. How do you begin something like that? What are you looking for? What are the questions that you're asking when you're looking to, to optimize that all of the different tooling that you bring in?
1: So typically, the first thing is we did an audit. We looked at all the softwares we purchased and found that, you know, there are many softwares which different departments have purchased, which are overlapping needs. So uh, you will find that, yeah, you can take away these because when you combine those softwares, it's the same software that can be used across marketing and sales and engineering teams versus everyone having their own stack. Because then that stack also needs to be integrated. You need an integration team that will work on integrating those software. Those costs add up. And that's where when you do an audit, you realize that, okay, you know what, all these things pretty much do the same thing. Yeah, sure, they have small variations, but is it worth it? And that's a question you have to ask. Just doing an audit itself, we put that all of it inside ClickUp. Like We're looking at it, we put all of our software licenses inside ClickUp with the dollars that we're spending on them every month, which department, and what's the use case. And just looking at it, you are like, hey, we can save a lot of money here. So I think it's just that bird-eye view. Or is the place I would recommend everyone to start? And you would be surprised by the insights you will get just looking at that list.
0: Great insights. We spent a good amount of time talking about cost efficiency and and looking at the different ways that we're investing dollars. Uh, the other side of this equation is also team efficiency and engineering efficiency. And so how the team is able to work together to produce the things that we're looking for. And so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about engineering efficiency. How are you building teams to optimize more for efficiency? And and what are the areas that you're focusing on right now?
1: We measure some some aspects of efficiency. It's very difficult to measure to put engineers in a specific box and say, you know what, this is a specific output that needs to come out. There's no one metrics that anyone has been able to identify very clearly, that this is the metrics for measuring engineering productivity, and that defines efficiency, right? Of course, everyone looks at output, that, okay, how many features are you building, or what's the impact you have on the business, but that's very subjective. So that's where I like the space framework. There is a framework called space framework for measuring their productivity, but that's also very subjective. So as much as you can codify, or as much as you can convert the space framework or whatever frameworks you're using into data. Don't have too many metrics because too many metrics is you lose the sight of if you have too many metrics. So have simpler metrics and fewer metrics and yeah, they won't be perfect, but they're good enough. You're not looking for perfection here and you're looking for something to understand how to measure teams and where the teams are struggling. Because assuming you've done your job right in hiring the right people, the teams are struggling maybe because of the lack of tools. Or lack of infrastructure, lack of understanding of the code complexity or something else there. And in order to understand that, you have to pick a few metrics and go based on that. It could be a combination of collaboration or the code or you know, the velocity or some combination of that kind of works we've put an internal dashboards where we do look at some of these metrics and we are that's what the trend of that metrics helps us understand if the team is struggling or blocked or not and of course we expose this to our managers and they have they have this metrics and they're looking at it uh, but that gives us a very good birds eye view of how the teams are working and what's the team's efficiency but this is a hard one because I've talked to a lot of leaders across many different companies on this one on the team's efficiency Everyone has it differently. Uber has this big dashboard they have around edge efficiency. Every company has very different ways they measure efficiency. And it's also very cultural. It touches at the heart of what the culture is. So I don't have a lot of great recommendation other than saying that pick fewer metrics and measure it. If you don't measure it, it's hard to understand. You definitely need few metrics. But then those few metrics are going to be very subjective because whatever I say here, there'll be a lot of debate and controversy on uh, a single metrics because you cannot put it down. But don't go for
0: perfection. That's the only suggestion I'll have. That's great. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your perspective between headcount and team efficiency and your your thoughts on the chicken or the egg, which one comes First, and how do you think about that when you're building out different teams?
1: So the way we have done it is we seed a team and we build a small team. So small team typically starts from for us between three to four people. We don't go more than that. So we start between like actually two to four people. And once that team gets efficient, only then we add more headcount to that because we don't believe that there's a phase of norming, storming, forming, and performing until the team gets into a little bit of rhythm where they understand each other and understand how to deliver or have their practices set, adding another person to that team does not really help. So we always start with a seat of two to four people. And then once that team gets to a state where they have their practices and they have their uh, understanding of the code, the area, what they're planning to do, their strategy figured out, that's when we add more people. That's how typically we have done I know there are instances where I've talked to different people and they've said that, you know what, it's better off just putting six people or eight people on a team right away because you don't want to keep adding more people. They'll go through that storming, forming phase and it'll reset the rhythm. So might as well get all the people together and then have them form as a team from the starting. I haven't seen it work at ClickUp. It's very subjective. At ClickUp, it has been better for us to have a smaller team. And once we get that working, then
0: add more to it. I love first off the framework of forming, norming, storming, performing. I think about that all the time. Anytime our teams get into a fight, I'm like, "Well, we're in the we're in the you know the storming phase right now, so this is actually totally natural. We will get to performing now because we're learning a bunch of things about each other." So I, I love like assessing the team's phase through that perspective and how that then layers onto team efficiency. And that as the team like develops those norms and performing, then you're adding people onto that system so that you can sort of essentially continue that performance throughout. I think that's really great. So when you're looking at these different teams, I was wondering if you'd share maybe. What have been some of the biggest challenges for you around team efficiency? And are there specific approaches or tactics that have helped you build or sustain more efficient engineering teams?
1: One is clarity of mission. There's an assumption that they have, they're have they technically smart. So well, beyond, beyond the assumption, the first one is, do they understand what they're building and why they're building? Because many times the technical decisions that they're making and the minor product decisions they're making, they all go back to, do they understand the problem they're trying to solve? And every time I have seen the teams make the decisions that I don't think were very coherent, they all went down to, they had a different understanding of the problem that they were trying to solve. It's key. I think the team has to understand the problem that they're trying to solve and whom they're trying to solve it for. Then they can make very, very good micro decisions. The second one is, if you think of engineering product and design as a unit, every time a team struggles as functioning, I see that the EPD unit, the engineering and product and design is not working very coherently. For whatever reasons, it could be personnel, it could be that You know, there's no product manager there or no designer there or many different reasons. But once the EPD, once you get that cycle working, that's where you have the product manager talking to customers, thinking about what needs to be built. A designer is designing it. Engineering is giving inputs to it. And that flywheel is amazing. But you got to get that flywheel going. And once that flywheel gets going, the team performs very, very well. So the clarity of mission and the EPD flywheel those are the two key things I found that the teams that are struggling, they struggle in those areas. And the moment they figure that out, they're really off to the races.
0: Going to the problem and vision area, do you have a, a framework that helps really create clarity for teams in those in those earlier moments, or how do you help create that clarity of problem or clarity of, of vision for either spinning up a new team or helping it refocus a team on a different problem area?
1: We're big on writing, yeah. So we ask everyone to write things down <laughs> because. When you have conversations, there is so many interpretation of the same words. There is so much misunderstanding. So we always ask people to write it down and get it on a on a document. We've seen that helps. So the framework we have right now is that identify your persona, the problem statement they are trying to solve, and how it would look like. In some cases, we have found that Amazon has this PR FAQ model where if you release this, how would your press release look like? We found that that framework has helped some of the teams. But at the end of it, just writing the act of writing it down has significantly helped because it simplifies the terminology because I've seen different teams use the same words, but they mean different things. So having it written down and with the terminology, I'm using this word and this is what it means. If I'm using a specific word for widgets or frameworks or components, this is what exactly it means. It simplifies the conversation and it gets that written down and you know, also holds to an agreement. Hey, this is what we agreed on. And if it changes, we can always change it, but it helps with the clarity. So Just the act of writing it down and with an explained terminology so that we're all using the same words. That helps significantly. That's the first step. And then, of course, we make refinements on it from a process perspective, gather customer feedback. We do a lot of user research. But the first part is always write it down.
0: I love the simplicity of just write it down. doesn't matter your framework, just the act of writing it down and explaining the terminology. That's like the hidden subtle subtle hack to help create clarity there. That's awesome. The EPD flywheel. So what have been the dysfunctions that you've noticed and like what really makes that EPD flywheel really fly in a smooth way?
1: As the teams are growing, uh, the teams are hiring. So many a times there are gaps. You might not have a product manager, designer or the engineering manager. That That is a big gap. So you've got to get the EPD there. You have to fill those roles. As long as they have a, they have a good working relationship, you know, at the end of it, we are people. So we have to have a good working relationship. And if you think of an engineering team as a team, you have to think of EPD as a team. And they will also go through the same phase of forming, storming, norming, and performing. So the sooner they get through that phase, the better it is. And then having an alignment on the clarity of the purpose, like what are they trying to solve together? Once you get that, that's where the magic happens. The sooner you get that done, the better you are. And that's the one thing we have seen that even when we seeded a team, we definitely seeded it with a product manager and a designer so that they are forming their bonds. They're trying to make the decisions by themselves, understand the problem statement they're trying to solve.
0: Thank you for letting me poke around into these areas because I mean, like I, I, these dysfunctions come up all the time. And so it's, it's great to hear how you think about this. So... Forming, norming, storming, performing. We have the team, they're performing, and now this particular problem space or feature is that an opportunity to expand. When you're thinking about increasing the net output of your engineering organization, uh, so like going beyond the team level, how do you think about that and in increasing the the net output? What are some of the approaches or tactics that you've seen help increase that, that net output?
1: So one of the things, the two things that have, that we've seen it's both are very subjective so it's hard to say but in one aspect uh, you have to figure out the bond of the team in one of the areas i'll give two examples that have worked because there is no one-size-fits-all here in one of the cases the team that was performing had multiple leads in the team so we actually took one lead out of that team and made one lead and made the other team seed with that person as we were expanding the problem statement because we we're like okay we we're working on views and we wanted to increase the surface area and invest more there so we took one of the leads out, formed a different team, and then that person seeded the team there. So that worked out well. However, we have had times when we broke up a team and put took people out, and then the both team got dysfunctional. It is a very subjective one. You have to look at the personnel and look at the person you're trying to bring out and see if they would function without the team and they would be the, the seed for the other team or not. In one case, we actually built the entire new team in, in parallel, and it worked out well because... We didn't want to disturb the existing team. And we didn't have the luxury because we didn't find that there are multiple leads to take out from that team. So we, we did not want to disturb the team. I think the one thing we have realized is that as much as you can, if a team is functioning, don't mess with it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a hard lesson, but if you're messing with it, you have to have a very clear reason and a rationale that you are going to take this person out and then have them as a seed. But a ton of messing around with the team gets you actually in the worst state.
0: I love it. Don't mess Don't mess with the secret recipe. If it's working, it's working. I think that's great. So I wanted to talk about hiring. So in, in this realm, we're talking about efficiency and increasing output. And then in an ideal world, if you're increasing that output, then you're unlocking new opportunities, you're adding value to the business, and you have an opportunity to invest more. And so I was wondering if you'd share about how are you thinking about and approaching hiring specifically with this efficiency focus? Who are you hiring? How are you hiring? And without losing that efficiency?
1: I think we always focused on a few things. When we are hired, we've not changed that I think we just have gotten a little more vigorous in terms of identifying the business needs of that hire and making sure that that hire has the absolute highest business impact. The base thing we look for is technical competence. And then our secret sauce is what we look for is we want to make sure that whomever we hire has the grit and the resiliency. That's something that we absolutely key for us that does that person have the hustle and the grit to just keep going at a problem and not giving up on it? Because in a startup, in a company like ClickUp, you need that lot right now. We're not Google, we're not Microsoft, where you have all the infrastructure and all the processes completely laid out for you. It's pretty much greenfield here at ClickUp. You are building those processes. We are paving those roads as you build features. So you have to have the great resiliency and that tenacity. And that's where we look for hustlers. uh, And that's the one that we have indexed heavily on. And we found that that's our secret sauce. That has helped. Now, that might not help everyone, Every company is at different stage of maturity, but for our company at this stage of maturity, that has helped significantly.
0: I think that's great, focusing on the grit and the resilience. When you are adding people to your organization first, so you've increased efficiency, the team is working. If you're going to add in new people to that organization first, where are you adding those people to?
1: Typically, we build new teams. So when we add in an organization, we carve out areas and we build squads. So we, what we call is squads, every squad is a self-functioning squad. It has a program manager and designer, it has a focus area. They have a vision, they have a strategy, uh, they understand what needs to be built, and they have the technical bench to go back and in front end, and also then the aspect of operations, because every squad in uh, my organization owns their operations, owns their deployment. They own the stack end to end. And so anytime we want to expand the organization, add more, we typically add more squads.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the process to ramp up the, the net new team and the net new squads?
1: The main thing we do is our our code is fairly complex. It has been built over many years. So for the first few, that's where we try to seed it with few people who have been here. And then as people get onboarded, that person keeps helping them. In the places where they have not, and when we are building net new teams, what we have done is that we have hired two or three people and we have had them part of another team, fixing issues with for another team, which is adjacent to that team. And that has been our way of ramping them up on our code base.
0: Interesting. So, so you start off by bringing in somebody new, have them fix issues, adjacent to the team they're working on, and then you bring them into the team. So it's like a two-step phase, bringing them in.
1: Yeah. And that helps us ramp them up
0: better. I love it. Thank you for for helping dive into some of the hiring elements and expanding capacity there. I know we're sort of rapid fire hitting a lot of these different areas. Going beyond the new team level, I wanted to talk about at a functional level. So expanding and building out a completely new function within the engineering organization. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your framework that you use before adding a new function to your engineering organization. How do you think about that? What does the process look like there when you're getting ready to add something new at that level?
1: We have organizational structures That we have, and we have leaders leading those organizations, it depends on if we have a business aspect of that, if we're going to invest in a specific area. Let's say we're going to invest in building a specific product line. That's where we start building squads. I think for us, it all comes down to squads. So for us, when we talk about new investment, it literally equates to, right. we've got to build new squads. Of course, it starts small, but that's how we equate. And it falls into the organization, not naturally, logically, depending on which leader has their organization. So that's how it forms into We have an infrastructure platform and core product organization. So it depends on which area we're investing in. They all have their own focus areas and we kind of go from there. So that's how for us, new investment is always new scores, unless it's a continuation of uh, an existing. If you're adding new features, that's different. But a new product line or a new investment or a new area is in most of the times new scores for us.
0: How is the new feature and adding new features different?
1: New features like continuation of that product line. So let's say we have ClickUp, we have Docs. Docs is a product. So let's say we are adding more features on the Docs. Then we already have a Docs team and they'll continue on the journey. They will have prioritization. They'll continue to prioritize. But let's say if you're going to invest more on AI, then we build a team and we hire individuals and, and we go from there. So that's where the differentiation is that are we adding more features to existing products or are we doing net
0: new investments? Great. Thanks for helping make the distinction there. I want to ask you about the story behind building out the TPM function and the how and the why behind building out that function within the organization. Can you share more about that? So TPM function is
1: a very unique one. Everyone has a different take on TPM function. So there's a Google's model, there's Amazon's model, and then Microsoft's model. Everyone has a different model. You got to pick what works for you. For us, we primarily leveraged our TPMs. We hired very technical TPMs. So people who are technically very deep, uh, most of them come from engineering background, and they run more of our complex programs across the board. So let's say if you're making large infrastructure changes, which touches all teams, they, this is where our TPMs will lead those initiatives. So for example, one of the major initiatives that we're running right now is sharding. Initially, when ClickUp was built, it was a big single database. And now we are breaking it down to smaller databases and having more of a shard or, a, I would say, a cell that can be deployed in any region or any country. We are moving in that direction. But as we look at that, there's a massive infrastructure change that we are taking where every team will have to participate and every team will have to contribute. And that the programs like those are driven by TPMs. That's how we have leveraged TPMs. But that's a very, very small organization for us because we're not taking too many initiatives like that. So we have a very small TPM function, but very technical. And they run our cross-team initiatives, large cross-team initiatives. And then engineering managers are responsible for the functionings of their own squads. Uh, We don't have DPMs
0: engaged there. One more follow up question here, because the comment you made at the beginning is that like a a lot of organizations will approach this differently. And it's about identifying what is the best version of it for you. And so when you think about like how to build out this particular role in the best way that serves you, what was your approach to identify like how to build out this function in a way that was best serving the organization? Were there certain questions that you would ask to help formulate the charter of the TPM function? What was that process like?
1: I think at some, at some level, it also comes from yourself. How, what do you believe in? I believe in empowering the engineering managers to making sure that they are responsible for delivery of their teams and then having TPMs being more cross squad and running large initiatives that run cross-cords. That's what I believe in. That's how we have hired engineering managers who are like that. And that's how we have hired TPMs. So You've got to pick some belief or philosophy that you have about organizations' beliefs or organization design. And just go with that because everything has to be coherent. You have to hire engineering managers who will behave that way. You'll have to hire TPMs that will function that way. I know that Facebook does not have that model. Facebook has a very different model where Facebook's TPMs are a lot more involved in individual teams running also. So this is different philosophies. My philosophy has been this way, that higher EMs will be more responsible for the functioning of the squads. And then again, our EMs then don't have very, very large teams. Our EMs have smaller teams. They are more technical in nature, very hands-on. So it depends on the philosophy, and that's how you scale. At ClickUp, we have picked this philosophy. Works for us at this stage. Most of my career, I've had this philosophy, so it's also something something that I've held to. I'm not, like you know, you have to pick something and coherently design your organization and hire everyone with the same philosophy. Otherwise, it would be a mess.
0: I love it. Shalish. we have a, a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that we had a chance to dive into some, some rapid-fire questions before we wrapped up. Are you ready to jump into some rapid-fire questions? Yep perfect. What are you reading or listening to right now?
1: So I'm uh, reading Frank Slotsman Ambit Up right now. Literally, I have that book right next to me. So that's uh, that's I'm reading right now. Uh, I'm not big on podcasts. I don't listen a lot. I read more. So I'm, I'm probably a little more uh, reading and writing person. I'm also reading a lot of articles as there are a lot of layoffs. A lot of companies are looking to figure out what's their direction. I think there are tons of articles about mistakes that companies have made in the past that have led them to the state. So I'm reading a ton of articles around that, that gives you a lot of clarity, and also helps you understand how to not make those same mistakes. So those are the two places where I'm reading a lot.
0: I I totally got the sense that you're an analog person from, you know, the earlier conversation where you're mentioning about, you know, having writing every morning, a quick follow up question about that. This is a bonus rapid fire question. What's your writing practice outside of taking physical notes, do you respond to prompts or are there certain things that you try to do every day to help cultivate your writing habit?
1: Every meeting I write. So I think that's the only thing I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I have literally have a notebook here. I think that's the main thing I do. And uh, of course, on documents, even in inside engineering, the first habit we have is write it down. Uh, If you discuss anything, write it down. It has helped. I don't, I don't have a lot of uh, great insights here. Just start, start small. I think I would I highly recommend everyone to start small, start writing it down in a, in a document or anywhere. I feel it's a great, great habit to build for any leader. It helps a lot of clarity for yourself because when I talk to people and when I write it down and then talk, I see a great clarity in my own thoughts. So having just written down even before talking to people have given me a lot of clarity.
0: I think that's great. Next rapid fire question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you?
1: I have a specific methodology about empowering specific leaders and not having a lot of cross-functional, Like I was talking about DPMs that okay, I want EMs to be responsible for their teams. Having single ownership and having that org design has helped me function better and helped me scale better. So that one from an org philosophy, and org design perspective, I help a lot. Uh, that has helped me a lot in terms of scaling it my past companies and is helping us kick up to.
0: What's a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet?
1: I think the cloud the cloud cost hasn't hit mainstream yet. A lot of people are looking at efficiency and I think the first thing they're going down to is firing. I think the first thing they should look around is software cost or the cloud cost. I think letting people go should have been the second one. But I find that people are taking the easy way out and there is a lot better utilization of people that companies can do in terms of how do you they utilize it to make more software or serve more users? I feel that like they're not doing the hard job.
0: I think it's interesting because I some of the stuff that I've been reading is around like the turnaround. So after you know after a big redirection or reorganization, like oftentimes the resources you need are oftentimes people that have been let go, and so that's almost like the last resort when you're trying to lead a turnaround into new priority areas. You need those resources to move forward, and there's a lot of like research around some of those things. So um, I think it's an interesting insight.
1: There's a lot of knee-jerk reaction for every large company, and maybe it is coming from the market, as in for a public company specifically, it's coming from the market. But I think that knee-jerk reaction, everyone needs to assess for themselves and not just follow what everyone else is doing.
0: That's great. also just want to acknowledge that's an incredible call to action. Uh, I think just as we're, we're talking about that, reframe the sequence in which you're looking to cut costs, I think will be a big unlock for folks. Last question, childish: Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now?
1: okay, this is very philosophical, but I'm reaching a point in my life where I have fewer years to live than I have lived. Okay, This is something I say every time. So the clarity and purpose of life has become more clearer to me. Uh, and uh, that's where you talking about. You talked about having my daughter come in and rearrange my desk and starting my day with that has been very energetic for me. And I'm leaning more on family first, but the clarity of and purpose of life becomes more clear. I would highly encourage that People should reach this stage in their life to have that clarity and purpose of life. So it's very philosophical, but there is nothing more important in life than having a good clarity and purpose and living for that.
0: I love that. Shailesh, thank you for the incredible conversation. Diving into everything about like more being more effective with costs, starting to think about how to increase your team efficiency and even assessing like how to invest in or think about building out new functions, new organizations, new features and things like that. I think we, we covered a ton. So I just appreciate just the velocity and just willingness to, to share so much from your experience. So thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on, head to SFELC.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.